Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 18, John chapter 18. Somebody looked at my sermon title this morning and asked me if I was going to keep the rhythm going throughout the sermon, Jesus on trial and Peter in denial. I said, yeah, I might try rapping the sermon, see how that goes. (laughs) I will not do that, I'm just kidding. John 18, there is a constant, unending temptation in the life of the believer to rest in our own spiritual accomplishment, to rely upon our own self-confidence in spiritual things, to get lured into thinking that we're doing well spiritually and that everything's humming along, experienced a few good days or weeks of a spiritual high where our time in the Word and prayer is fresh every day and enjoyable We hear some really good sermons that encourage us and strengthen us. We enjoy some good fellowship with our church family. We walk in victory over sinfulness. We see the Lord use us in some encouraging way. And all of those things combine to swing our spiritual cradle and lull us to sleep in the supposed safety of our spiritual successes. We come to the middle part of John 18. We see this danger played out in the life of of a man who we see so much of ourselves in, that of Peter. He's just experienced some amazing spiritual highs. If you just think over the last two months of Peter's life as you head into John 18, he has seen Jesus call forth a very dead Lazarus out of the tomb. He has seen the reaction of that in the culture around as many believed in the Lord because of that miracle. He has seen him heal blind Bartimaeus. He has heard him teach with authority on the temple compound and courtyard. He's listened to Jesus shut down scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees with all of their persnickety questions about the law. He has eaten the Passover meal with his Lord and his Lord has washed his feet and added meaning to the supper in a way that Peter does not yet fully understand. He's heard one of the the most powerful sermons ever spoken from human lips, that of the upper room discourse around the Passover table. He's heard the greatest prayer ever prayed on behalf of humanity, that of the high priestly prayer in John 17. Peter has also along the way heard the very direct warnings of our Lord about the, the danger that lies ahead. Jesus has told him and the other disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem and I will be handed over to the scribes and the Pharisees and and I will be condemned and I will be put to death, but I will rise on the third day. Peter has heard the warnings of his own betrayal and denial of the Lord. That before this night, he was told in the upper room, before this night ends, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three different times. But in Peter's heart, I assume, I presume from studying the text that that danger is far away. That that threat of him actually denying his Lord is distant in this moment. There seems to be no serious pressure into temptation in the middle of John 18. So Peter barrels ahead. Peter does the Peter thing and and rushes headlong into whatever's next. And friend, this is a warning flag for your soul and for mine. Peter's story is included in all four of the gospel records. That's instructive. Not every part of Passion Week is included in all four gospel records. When it is, it stands out boldly to say to you, this is important, pay attention, as though all of it is important, but this is especially important. Pay attention, it is a warning sign to us. We must all take heed. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Peter's not the only actor in this unfolding drama in John 18. In fact, the way John presents Peter's denial, it is next to Jesus' trial. So John the apostle intends for us to see the contrast between the two, between Peter and Jesus. And so while we take caution from Peter's denial, we take comfort and encouragement and instruction and we rest our faith on our Lord's faithful witness. 
John 18, verse 12 says this. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so he said to him, excuse me, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, there's a turn of irony in the story, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, this is your word, breathed out by your will for our instruction and your glory. Help us to receive it by faith, to be instructed by it for all of eternity. Would you shape us with this, your word, for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. The drama in our text unfolds in four scenes. In scene one, Jesus is arrested by the soldiers and the officers and the Jewish leaders. In scene two, Peter is questioned by the slave girl as he's let into the courtyard. In scene three, Jesus is questioned by Annas and then shipped off to Caiaphas. And then in scene four, Peter is questioned by the fire and denies his Lord two more times, and then the rooster crows. The text yo-yos back and forth between Jesus and Peter. They're both questioned, and they're both pressed by the world. And Jesus is a faithful and wise witness, while Peter is faithless and foolish and denies his Lord. Peter's a cautionary tale for us, and Jesus is our humble and heroic and sinless Savior. In last week's text, we saw Peter dart forward with his sword as Jesus was being arrested and he slashed off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. That brash boldness of Peter is typical with him, isn't it? It communicates what was in his heart, a, a confidence, a, a fleshliness that compelled him into situations like this to do something, to not stand around and just let life come at you, but to take the, the horse by the reins and go after it. It's a, a strength in him, and it could communicate to us from this text a spiritual strength and fervor in Peter to do what he thought was right. But as we see this bold Peter, this strong Peter, plunged into the courtyard of the high priest, we see this slip, slippery slide into compromise. And we see him exposed as vulnerable and weak. Before our Lord. On the other hand, you have Jesus who appears to be caught in this moment in the weakest spot of his humanity, arrested by mere men, taken captive and held on trial in front of, of godless men who claim the name of Yahweh. But we see in this moment of, of human weakness the great strength of our Lord displayed in astounding ways. So one man looks strong and ready for battle, but he takes a great fall. 
The other man looks weak and caught in a hopeless situation, but in reality, he is the epitome of divine strength and courage. Let's look first at Peter, the cautionary tale of one who looks strong, but who is actually primed for a fall. In some ways, we're kind of performing a spiritual autopsy on on Peter's denial of our Lord, and none of us would want that to be done for us. But thankfully, this isn't the end of the story for Peter, and that's, that's why it's included in the text, because we hear of his restoration in chapter 21. So while we will pummel Peter a little bit today, we'll see him restored later, and we'll see in him a mirror picture of all of us and our own hearts. I ask you, how does someone so strong and so bold end up denying that he that he even knows our Lord? That, that's a basic question. The question was not, will you die for your Lord? Will you follow him to the cross? Will you stand up and preach for your Lord in our No, the question was simply, do you know him? Are you one of his disciples? You also know the man, don't you? How does someone so bold, so as to to pull a sword from their sheath and and lunge at an officer of the court of the high priest to defend his Savior? How does someone like that say, I am not? Listen, man, I told you, I am not. No, I curse my own existence if I am a disciple. I am not. How does that happen? We see in our own hearts the same tendency to denying Jesus. You may not be able to think immediately of a time when you said to an unbelieving coworker or friend or neighbor or relative, no, I'm not a follower of Christ. You probably haven't said that recently. But it wouldn't take long to evaluate your heart and your past week and think of some way in which what you've done or what you've said or what you've thought or how you spent your time or your money has denied that Jesus is your Lord. That by your life, you have denied that you follow him. As we look at Peter's life, I want to lay before you three marks or characteristics of his denial. And I I want to lay them before you so that you see the caution in his story for you. Before we get there, just notice a few things about what's going on in John 18. So Jesus is arrested, and uh, in verse 12, the 11 initially all fled away and escaped. We learned that from the other uh, gospel writers. They all flee. Nine of the 11 stay away. We don't know what happened to the rest of them. They don't show back up until resurrection morning. But two of them, Peter and this other disciple mentioned in verse 15, come back to see what will happen with Jesus. Why are they drawn back? They're in cowardice. They fled I think in love, they're drawn back. They want to know what's going to happen to their Lord. They can't just abandon him completely. They must at least follow in the shadows of this crucial hour and track what's going to happen to Jesus. Jesus has taken, first of all, to appear before Annas, who was the the patriarch of the high priestly family of the Jewish religion. This is the most important political and religious family in Jewish life. All of Jerusalem knew who Annas and his family were. John tells us that there was another disciple who was tagging along or with Peter, and he knew or was known by the high priest. And the terminology there is it's more than an acquaintance. They didn't just know each other's names. There was a, a friendship or a relationship there that went deeper than just knowing who one another was. And so because the high priest and his servants knew this disciple, he was led in to follow Jesus as he went on trial before Annas. But Peter was kept out. Well, then this other disciple steps in, vouches for him at the door. You know me, I know him, let him in. The servant girl opens the door, Peter walks in. So the question before you, as just maybe a a sign of curiosity of your own heart, is who's the other disciple, right? You're asking that. I can't really preach until I answer that question because you're just thinking, who is this other disciple and why doesn't John tell us? Well, there's obviously no little debate among the scholars about this. You can, you can find scholars who will tell you that it's Joseph of Arimathea uh, or that it's Nicodemus who were secret disciples of our Lord until after the resurrection. Some even think it's Judas who in his betrayal followed along and was known to the high priest and 
let Peter in. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what they go with. But really, the, the easiest answer, and I think the, the one best supported by the text, is John himself. That John the Apostle is the one who is the other disciple. There's a lot of clues in the text that lead us to believe that. One is that John never names himself in his gospel. In other texts, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. He doesn't do that here, and I'll tell you why in a minute. He just calls himself the other disciple. We also learn details of what happened here that seem to only have come from an eyewitness account. Now, certainly, the Holy Spirit could have revealed to John as he wrote his gospel what happened when John wasn't there. That happens other places. But likely, as he gives you detail, he gives you detail of an eyewitness. For instance, he tells you the name of the one whose ear was cut off, Malchus. How did he know his name? Well, probably because John's the other disciple who knows the high priest's family and his servants. And how does he know that the one who confronts Peter at the fire before his third denial is a relative of Malchus? Because he knows the high priest's family and his servants. And so we have little clues in the text that point us to John being one who was familiar to the high priest. Now, the biggest knock against that proposition, if you read a commentary later today in your free time, because you're, you know, you're bored and you can't sleep. So if you do that, one of the knocks against that is that there's no way John could be that guy because a fisherman's family wouldn't have been in cahoots with the high priestly family. They wouldn't have had interaction. Well, first of all, in first century Judaism, the, the tiers of society weren't that distinct. And to be a fisherman, you often sold fish, the, the greatest commodity of protein in the land of Israel, to lots of people. And in fact, there's first century witness to John's father, Zebedee, being a merchant to the high priestly family. There's people who reference John and his family as delivering fish to the high priest's family, namely to Annas. Also, if you link some things together in the New Testament, you can find out that John was likely of a priestly family. You link that back through Salome, his mom, who was related to Mary, and they come from a priestly family on Mary's mother's side. So likely, John himself is of a priestly family and maybe even served in the temple underneath Annas at some point. Are you confused? All right. All that to say, there is good credibility for John being the other disciple who comes and vouches for Peter and he lets him in. So why doesn't John just say, and the beloved disciple went and spoke to the servant girl? Why doesn't he just say that? Well, think about what's happening in John 18. Peter is falling and John is faithful. The last thing the apostle wants to do is make this text a comparison between a faithful and a faithless disciple. What he wants to do is make this a comparison between a faithless disciple and his faithful Lord. John is trying to get out of the way. He doesn't want you to think of Peter in comparison to John. He wants you to think of Peter in comparison to Jesus to show you the glory of our Savior. As you get your mind back on the scene as it unfolds, John comes and the servant girl lets Peter in on John's credibility, lets him come into the courtyard, and immediately there's this connection between John and Peter in the servant girl's mind, right? John is saying, he's my friend, let him in. So the natural question is, oh, you're one of his disciples too then, aren't you? Or you're not one of his too, are you? It's a cynical question. She's trying to egg out of Peter a negative response to save credibility and reputation. But there's no other logical conclusion. John knows you and is vouching for you to come in. Are you also his disciple? Peter is already being associated with John as a disciple of Jesus. And so I ask you, why does Peter feel the need to lie? On top of that, this is a lowly servant girl who is merely managing the door to the courtyard of the high priest. What does it really matter if she knows that Peter is a disciple of Jesus? What is it that drives Peter to say, no, I am not? As the story unfolds, Peter cozies up around the fire with the others who are waiting in the courtyard. John tells us that providentially it was a cool night. It probably was a cloudless night, as often it was at Passover time. It was cool, and there was a fire needed. You can imagine, as 
as the officers of the high priests are gathered around that fire. These are men who, as we learn later, were at the arrest scene in the garden. You can imagine what they're talking about. You can imagine their stories. You can imagine how they're, they're being hyperbolic about all that happened, and they're, they're ramping up their fish stories about the event and how much bigger it actually was. And you can imagine Peter listening to all that they're saying as they mock this teacher from Galilee who now faces the wrath of the Sanhedrin. And as they stood there and told their stories, they noticed that Peter doesn't quite fit in, that he isn't talking like the rest of them are talking, probably not saying much at all. And as they look at him, they say to him, you're also not one of his disciples, are you? See, when you deny your Lord once, you grease the slide to do it again. You harden your heart and push against the conscience in your soul that tells you don't do this. And so because he had already to the slave girl said, no, I am not, he says to these men, no, I am not. Maybe in the flicker of the fire, one of the men catches a better glimpse of Peter's face and is like, wait a second, I know you. I just saw you in the garden. You just cut off my relative's ear. Don't I know you? Didn't I just see you? Listen, at this point, the sham is up. Right? The masks are off. Flying under the radar isn't going to work, and it's clear that you have been outed, Peter, but he still reinforces his denial. No, I am not. As the pressure And the questions got stronger. So did his denials of knowing and following his Lord. So I ask you, why did this strong saint fall so mightily? Why was he so bold to cut off a man's ear and so weak as to not be able to say, yes, I am? By asking the question, we seek in our own hearts to avoid this weakness. The first mark of this denying heart is that of self-reliant zeal. Self-reliant zeal, we see that in Peter. I mentioned it last week, but it's important to return to it again and see it in this instance. His spiritual fervor and zeal which compelled him to pull out his sword and and rush at the servant in the garden was a zeal which was self-produced. It was not in line with the clear will of his master and of his Lord. He took matters into his own hands. He did not listen to what Jesus told him was going to happen. He was emboldened by what he saw Jesus do, putting them all on their backsides by simply saying, I am, ego, me," and they're all on the ground. And so Peter, inspired by that event, pulls out his sword and rushes after one of them. It's a, a zeal rooted in Peter himself. This set him up for this great fall in the courtyard. This is what self-derived spiritual confidence does to us. It sets us up for a great fall when the fires of testing come. Peter's example lays plain before us our own tendency here. Jesus already knew ahead of time that this was what was going to happen to Peter. He knew that Peter's resolve to even die with Jesus. Remember when he said that back in the upper room in chapter 13? I'll die with you, Lord. Well, Jesus knew the actual state of Peter's resolve, that it was, it was self-induced and, and self-prompted and self-dependent. And Jesus said, no, actually, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Our Lord, obviously, in chapter 13, is speaking prophetically and omnisciently, but he's also speaking practically. This is what self-reliant spiritual zeal does. It sets you up to fall down. When we become the confidence and the foundation of that confidence, when our spiritual performance or our perceived ability when our spiritual successes tempt us to to lean hard on our effort, when we willingly rush into the spiritual battle with confidence that we can handle it because we won the last time, here it is that we, like Peter, set ourselves up for a great fall. This self-reliant zeal is also coupled with disillusionment. Peter was ready to go into battle to fight for his Lord or to die trying He was ready, and he was eager and zealous, and then he gets rebuked by Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. 
Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given to me? Now listen, we focus on the the Jesus side of that statement, and we should. But just think for a minute, if you're Peter and you hear that in that moment, what happens to you? Like, what, Lord? We're not fighting? You told me, you, you said two swords would be good. I've got my sword, let's go. What in the world is happening right now? So he's bewildered and confused and in this cloud of dust that trails behind Jesus being arrested, he is left in in this disillusioned state. He had missed all the the clear testimony of Jesus about how this was going to go. Jesus had just told him minutes earlier to watch and pray so you enter not into temptation. He had been told over and over again that Jesus was going away to a place that Peter could not go to, but that Jesus was going to come back and bring Peter to be with him where he was. Jesus had said over and over again, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many, that I was going to Jerusalem to be arrested and tried and executed and to rise again. But Peter apparently has missed all of that, thinks the plan is something different, and here he stands in the garden, bewildered and disillusioned. And so he follows at a distance to see what is going to happen. His self-confidence and pride set him up for this moment. Now his disappointment with Jesus and with what's happening was pushing him further down the path of denial. And as he gets to the courtyard, he's locked out, adding to his disillusionment, don't you think? Just another piece of the puzzle, like, really, Lord? I can't even get in to see your trial. I can't even watch the proceedings that are going to happen. On a side note, Peter actually should have seen the closed gate as providential protection. This was God's kindness to him to stop him from going in. But in his self-confident zeal, he pushed through the barrier leading him or preventing him from going down the path of sinfulness. And, And we do this often, do we not? You think back to when you got caught in a sin this past week and And I bet you can think that there were barriers along the path that God gave you. Maybe a phone call or a text from a brother or sister right at that moment. Or or something that prevented you from pursuing it right then. But you didn't let that stop you, or maybe by God's grace you did. And it derailed you from your sinfulness. That's what's happening here to Peter. But he pushes through and gets into the courtyard. And as he gets in, what is the state of Peter's soul? As he walks through that courtyard gate, how is he doing with the Lord? He is frustrated and discouraged, and I think disillusioned, confused, bewildered, not sure what's going on. And this, friend, is another mark of this heart of denial. Things don't go the way we had imagined they would. This is like Christian living 101, right? And yet we struggle with it every time. We have this idealized plan in our mind of how this is going to work. We are committed in our self-confident spiritual zeal. We're going to do this and this and this and this and this for the Lord, and it's all going to go great, and here's going to be the result, and God's going to be glorified, and we're all going to be happy. And then we get into the first step of that, and it all gets turned upside down. And our intentions to be useful to the Lord backfire in our face, and we find ourselves licking our spiritual wounds and wondering what in the world is going on. Lord, I just wanted to serve you. What is happening? And here it is, you must take caution. Because this is where Peter was primed for a fall. Didn't pan out like we thought. Disillusioned and ready to deny our Lord. The third mark of this denying heart is fear of man. The fear of man. This is, maybe to say it this way, the first two marks lead you to the edge of the cliff of denial. Fear of man pushes you over. The first two, disillusionment and self-confident zeal, lead you to the edge of denial. It's this fear of man that that shoves you in the back, into the precipice of denying your Lord. This is what happens with Peter. He's, He's primed for this fall, but then it's his fear of man that pushes him over the edge, slides down the slippery slope, descending into greater and greater denial. Why? Because he fears the people who are questioning him more than he fears the one whom he has said is his Lord and his God. 
he enters into the courtyard determined to fly under the radar, doesn't he? He goes into that courtyard determined to not be known as a follower of Jesus. He just wants to see from a distance what's happening. He doesn't want to draw scuttlebutt from everyone in the courtyard. And so he tries to ride the middle of the road. He tries to be with the world, but not of the world. He tries to warm himself around their fire, but stay absent from their conversation. And as he tries to walk the middle of the road, as happens so very often, he gets sucked right into their lair. And his true identity is demanded to be known. The spirit of man blows up in his face. He's recognized by those around him. And yet he persists in his denial. Do you think after the first two denials, the one of the servant girl at the gate, the first one around the fire when it's just kind of a casual, hey, aren't you also one of his disciples? You're, you're not one, are you? No, I'm not. Do you, do you think he's more ready by the third confrontation to stand faithfully or less ready? And you know the answer, he's less ready. Why? Because he's denied him already twice. He's gone down this path of fear of man. And so fear of man is like a, the proverbial snowball rolling downhill, picking up more steam and, and more weight and more mass and less easily stopped. And so as he is confronted in a situation that is, is ridiculously obvious, one in which we all should say, Peter, just fess up, man. You are outed and busted. Just say what's true. He can't at that point because fear of man is so great in his heart. Peter is ripped by fear of others. Beloved, this is where self-reliant zeal, disillusionment, and fear of man lead our hearts. It's to a denial of Christ, whether in action, word, thought, deed, or clear expression, I do not follow Jesus. As we try to fly under the radar as a secret disciple, try to keep our relationships with the world without having it cost us that we follow Jesus. It's there that we set ourselves up to deny our Lord. And so in light of Peter's faithlessness and his fall in the courtyard, I ask you, what is our hope? And, and better yet, who is our hope? If Peter can't make it, friend, neither can you. Peter's so strong and so bold and so courageous and walked with our Lord for three and a half years and heard all that he heard and is an apostle of Jesus. If he can't make it in his own strength, friend, neither can you. Well, what is Peter's hope and, and what is yours and who is yours? Enter Jesus. I want you to see the strength of the humble Savior. We see in Peter human strength melt away into total weakness and failure. We see in Jesus the appearance of weakness proved to be glorious strength. He's arrested. We saw last week that all of that was according to his plan. He intended to be finally taken by their plot to put him to death. And this was the way, to be arrested and hauled before Annas and go through the maze of unjust trials that awaited him through the night. And through it all, don't we see a steadfastness and a, a strength in our Lord that defies human explanation? There's something in Jesus in this text that is not inherently in me or in you. There's something about Jesus that's different here. A strength which magnifies him as the divine son. We see in him the true and final answer to our sin problem. One who is faithful to the end so that he could lay down his life as our sin substitute. As these worldly minded men press down upon our Lord with their presumed authority. Authority, by the way, given to them from heaven. As they press upon him, how does he respond? What marks of strength do we see in Jesus? Just like we saw marks of compromise and denial in Peter, what marks of strength on the positive side do we see in our Lord? In verses 12 to 14, we see a zealous substitution, a zeal to give his life as a substitute for sinners. We saw in verse 4 that Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him, and because he knew that, he did not flee the garden, but rather stepped out of the garden and asked the 
arresting party, whom do you seek? He brought the battle to the ones coming to arrest him. Now in verse 12, this arresting party steps forward and seizes Jesus to take him back to the Jewish authorities and to put him on trial. And this only happens because Jesus allows it to, right? They have no actual authority over him. He submits himself to this process for his purposes. I love how John mentions in verse 12 that all of the members of this arresting party, he, he goes through them all again. The soldiers and the officer of the soldiers and the officers from the chief priests, the Jewish authorities. In other words, all the men who, who just got put on their backsides by Jesus who said, I am, actually stand back up and are dutiful in their rebellion against the Son of God. They all come forward and bind Jesus as though they have power over him who just by his words defeated them. They're so dead in their sinfulness. They're so blinded by the God of this world. They just can't stop and think for a minute. What are we doing? We have no power to arrest this mighty man. Their hard-hearted sinful rebellion is on full display. They lead him away then to Annas. John tells us that he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest in the year of our Lord's death. Annas is probably about 60 years old at this time. He's as I mentioned, the most important Jewish political figure of the day. Now, what is the high priest? You, you know from knowing your Bible, this is a biblical office, right? Established in the Old Testament. It's established by, by birth, appointed by God for the sake of, of overseeing the temple worship and especially for bringing in once a year the sacrifice for the people on the Day of Atonement. He had special garb. He had a special robe that had special ornaments in it, embedded into it to communicate that he was the priest of the people of God. He was a unique person set aside for a unique office by God, and he was to serve in that role for life. As you get into the second temple period and as different political entities rule over Jerusalem in the first century, particularly the Romans, the high priest's office became a political football. It became a, a piece of manipulation so as to domineer the people. You see, Rome especially understood that if you want to control a people, control their religion. And so they controlled their religion through controlling their high priest. The second temple period, so the rebuilding of the temple from Ezra's day on through to its destruction in 70 AD was 420 years. In that 420 years, we're told by historians that over 300 high priests served in this office. They didn't stay very long because they were only useful for so long for political purposes. The high priestly family domineered over the, the temple services, and, and especially by Annas' day, they had figured out a way to scam the people of God. Because when the people of God pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast days, they need to offer a sacrifice, Right? by God's command, according to his word, to be in right standing with God. And so they had to bring a sacrifice that was pure and undefiled. And it was up to the priests to determine that your sacrifice was good enough to sacrifice. And so they got the bright idea that they could be in cahoots as priests and priestly family to deny the sacrifices of the pilgrims. Oh, no, it got dirty on the way. It's not spotless or stainless. It, it broke something. It can't be sacrificed. Here, buy ours that we've provided for you so conveniently in the temple courtyard. And, and by the way, it's a little bit more than you might pay at home. Actually, it's a lot more, like when you buy the hot dog at the game. It's ridiculously expensive. And also, you have to pay a temple tax when you show up for these feasts, and you can only pay it in a certain coinage. And you have to exchange your money from your wherever you live with the money of the temple tax. Oh, and by the way, there's a slight exchange fee on that. And in this way... Annas and his sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, have a racket going by which they seize on the religious practices of God's people to gain wealth upon wealth for them. Now it makes sense why Jesus, at the beginning and the end of his ministry, came into Jerusalem and poked the eye of the priestly family marched into the temple courtyards and threw over the, the tables of the money changers. 
made a whip and drove out the animals from the temple courtyard and said, my father's house is a house of prayer. And he condemned the high priestly racket known in that day as the the courts or the marketplace of Annas. That's how familiar people were with Annas' control over this whole situation. Well, Annas has been uniquely uh, adept at politics. He served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15, so nine years. He was deposed by a Roman governor who came in and got rid of him, but he was so careful and good in his political maneuvering that he was able to establish five of his sons, one of his son-in-laws, and one of his grandsons as high priest. And just like a president in our country who's always known as, as President Bush or President Clinton or President Obama, so too these high priests were always known as high priest Annas or high priest Caiaphas. But Annas is the chief of them all. He's the patriarch of this ruling, domineering, high priestly family. And they are wealthy beyond your imagination, which is how they keep the office. They bribe the Romans to maintain power and control. And as Jesus, on Sunday of his Passion Week, marched into Jerusalem after the triumphal entry in which he was hailed, Hosanna, God, save us. Son of David, save us. After he was hailed in that moment, he marched into the temple and threw over the tables governed by Annas, drove out the animals being sold by Annas. And now on Friday, Thursday night into Friday, he has to appear before this Annas. He's on trial. John reminds us in verse 14 that this is all in keeping with what Caiaphas had predicted back in chapter 11 after the raising of Lazarus. Caiaphas had advised is the word. It's really a word that means to plot together, to connive, to hatch an evil plan. And he said in that text, it'd be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. What he means is that it's politically expedient for us to get rid of Jesus and maintain our peace with Rome. We are threatened by Jesus. Let's get rid of him so we can maintain our current standing with Rome. Caiaphas, we'll learn more about him in coming weeks, was maybe even more adept politically than his father-in-law, Annas. He's the longest tenured high priest in the first century in Jerusalem. He served in that role for 18 years, from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, meaning he was a conniving, corrupt politician who could keep power in unique ways. These men are coming together as the the brain trust of the Jewish people to guarantee Jesus must die. You think any of that's news to Jesus? Would Jesus have learned anything from what I just told you? He knew all of that as he was hauled by the Roman soldiers into the courtyard of Annas. What does he do? Knowing all of that corruption, all of that sinfulness, all of that wickedness, what does he do? He steps forward in zeal, says, whom do you see? Turns around, gives, him, gives them his hands for his arrest and is led away. Why? Why does he give himself over to this kangaroo court and these corrupt men? Why is he a willing prisoner? So that he can set you Why is he willing to be unjustly tried and condemned with the verdict of guilty, even though he is innocent, sentenced to death, so that you will never have to stand trial? So that you can be eternally cleared. Though guilty, your record can forever say, innocent, justified, sinless in Christ. What a Savior. Another mark of his strength is transparent truthfulness. See that in verses 19 to 21. He's questioned by Annas about his disciples and his teaching. If really you want to do more study this afternoon, an interesting thing for you to do would be to look through the gospel records and all the ways they describe the different trials Jesus went through. Don't look at any other study resources. Just read your Bible and try to put it together. 
you'll see that there's six different trials, three before the religious leaders, one before Annas, one before Caiaphas, and one before the Sanhedrin. And then when day breaks, there's three civil trials, one before Pilate, one before Herod Antipas, and another one before Pilate, before he is condemned to die. Each of those trials has a unique focus. They're questioning him in a unique way. So as he's questioned before Caiaphas, we'll see the question is, are you the son of God? They're trying to conjure up two or three witnesses to validate that Jesus blasphemed God by calling himself his son. But here in our text, before Annas, the focus is his disciples and his teaching. That's an interesting statement. Annas questioned questioned him about his disciples, his followers, and his teaching. In other words, he's trying to assess, I think, how much of a threat Jesus is to his power as the patriarch of the high priestly office. He's trying to assess how many followers do you have? How potent are you as a rabbi in first century Judaism? How about your teaching? Are you teaching people to to go against Rome and to establish an earthly kingdom? But more than that, it's a, a power play by Annas to really show Jesus, I'm in charge, you're not. Yeah, you turned over my tables on Sunday, but you're on trial now and you're about to die for it. Notice how Jesus answers. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You see here the transparent truthfulness of our Savior. Jesus certainly does not mean he never taught his disciples only in public, that he never had a private conversation, that he never said anything to just one or two people here or there. What he means is there's no secret agenda. There's no set of teaching for the public and then another set of teaching for the initiated in crowd, the disciples behind closed doors. Now Jesus says, I have been transparent and I have been consistent. What I said in public, I said in private. I've gone on record about it. Ask those who heard me. I was not vague. I was not unclear. I've not stuttered. I've not used verbal smoke screens to hide my agenda. I have said it plainly and truly. I am the Son of God sent from the Father to give my life as a good shepherd for his sheep. He said it over and over and over again. And friend, this is the beauty of the Christian gospel and the Christian message. We don't need to put this truth under a bushel out of fear of the world. We can, like Jesus, be open and honest and transparent with our message. In fact, we not only can be, we must be. Obviously, we have to be shrewd like Jesus and wise like Jesus when the world comes after us so as to destroy the message and the church. But in shrewdness, we can say to them, You don't need me to tell you what I've said. It's public. The Christian gospel is not an initiation into a secret knowledge only for those who make it through the process, like some Masonic rite in which only those initiated know what actually the true message and plan is. Jesus says, I've told you the gospel plain as the sun is shining during the day. So we as Christ's church, the pillar and the buttress of truth, are to boldly, clearly, plainly state the truth of the Christian message every chance we get, just like our Lord. And it's all based on the strength we see in Jesus for transparent truthfulness. Though he's put on trial by wicked men who have hidden agendas unlike him, he stands firm and simply says, I've said what I've said. And then notice lastly, his self-controlled suffering, verses 22 to 24. See the glory of a Savior who restrains himself while, while being unjustly beaten. We'll come to this again in chapter 19, but it's an amazing display of, of self-control by our suffering Lord. Like a, a lamb, he goes silent to the slaughter. The corrupt high priest has a corrupt servant, which is instructive. Corrupt masters draw to themselves corrupt servants. He has a corrupt servant who, when he hears the answer of Jesus, smacks him across the face and as a power play says, is that how you speak to the high priest? 
trying to put Jesus in his place. Can you imagine, this is a, a little holy imagination event here. Can you imagine the response of heaven in that moment? Those 12 legions of angels seeing the Son of God hit by a wicked, sinful, rebellious man for telling the truth. Can you imagine those angels all grabbing their sword? Let's go. We're ready. But it was not to be our self-controlled Savior submitted to the process, determined to die for our sins, zealous to be our substitute willing to suffer in our place, determined to obey and suffer every blow. What a Savior. As you look upon these two men contrasted in this text, you have to ask, what hope is there for Peter? And hence, what hope is there for me, for you? Well, the hope is a faithful Jesus. He who falls in the high priest's courtyard will soon be restored by the faithful and true high priest. Peter's fall will prove to be to his betterment because Jesus will restore him and train him through it so that he can more effectively serve. It's only because Jesus himself was faithful as our high priest, zealous as our substitute, transparently truthful, self-controlled, to give his life for you and for me. Glory be to our Savior, pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus, our Lord and our God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for willingly suffering in our place, zealously pursuing obedience to its final act. Lord, we pray that you would make us more and more like Jesus, faithful in the face of a contrary and hate-filled world. Help us, Lord, to stand firm and stand strong, not in our strength, but in the strength of our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.